looking at one of the most famous verses in all the Bible today. You don't have to be a regular church attender uh, to be confronted with the reference John 3.16. This passage, John 3.16, has been used in sporting events. Uh, most recently, you, I, I say most recent, but I mean this is several years ago, uh, Tim Tebow, it was like a, a movement, like Tim Tebow, Tebow wore the eye black and he wrote John 3.16 on the eye black and, and it was like, here it was, front and center again. Uh, you may go back if you're into uh, wrestling, I'm not, but Stone Cold Steve Austin, he used to wear a shirt that said Austin 3.16. And it was basically his way of mocking another person that he just abused in the wrestling ring, um, that, that he was a follower of Jesus. And, and this was basically Stone Cold Steve Austin's way of saying like, hey, what does is, what is John 3.16 says? He goes, I don't know. Here's what Austin 3.16 says. I just whipped you in the, the wrestling ring, right? And so like it's made famous. You, you take the bottom of your in and out cup and you flip it over. Did you know this? You're going to see, like, John 3.16 will be there. This verse has, has been plastered everywhere. And here's what I would say. A lot of times, like, when we become so familiar with a passage, it kind of loses its punch, right? We, we, we become so familiar that when we see that verse, when we see that reference, it's easy to just kind of read past it, and it doesn't really do anything in our heart. It doesn't really impact us. It doesn't really change us and transform us. And so here's my hope this morning is, I just hope that, that we hear this passage afresh this morning, that, that it, would, it would not fall on hearts that are hardened. It would not fall on hearts that are like, yeah, you know what, I've, I've heard that verse, I know that verse. And even the simplicity of this message, I, I feel like I could take the same message and walk into our six-year-old class this morning, and I could teach this exact same message, and I just hope that you're not lost in the simplicity of it this morning. There is so much in this one verse John 3.16, and we're going we're gonna to kind of expand beyond John 3.16, but it sums up the good news of the gospel. I remember uh, John 3.16 was one of the, the first passages that I memorized when I became a Christian. I remember my three-year-old daughter talking to her great-grandmother on the phone and her reciting this passage as a three-year-old. And, and I just hope this morning, uh, maybe you're familiar, you're not just going... I know, I know, I know these, I know these. I want you to know it, like really know it. And, I, and I'm praying, and I've been praying for you this week. I've, I've been praying that this message would impact your hearts and impact your lives in a very, very profound way. We, we have so much familiarity with John 3.16, and obviously it's it's very popular verse. And uh, but, but many of us don't know John 3.17, and there's as much good news in John 3.17 as there is in John 3.16. So if you want to start a new movement, you could start the John 3.17 movement and plaster John 3.17 everywhere uh, because this speaks so much to us. John 3.17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. How, do, how many of you know this morning that the posture of God the Father is not one of condemnation towards you. And that may seem shocking this morning because I, I, for one, can think back over the last six days and go, man, I feel like there's times where God is, has kind of held me at a distance. I feel like there's times where I'm like, you know what? I feel like I'm experiencing the condemnation of God. There are times where I feel like, man, he must be so displeased with me. And I, I just remember yesterday I took my kids. We, we've been trying out for a bunch of different baseball teams. And I just, every single time we pulled into a parking lot to, to like go try out for another team, I'm like, hey, do you know your dad loves you? Do you know that it doesn't matter if you make this team or not? Like, it doesn't change my love for you. We're here to have fun, and we're getting to practice for free. Like, this is awesome, right? And do you know, like, that's the way God the Father... I just kept communicating because so much of our world is, is based on... We, we are loved because of how we perform. 
And I just, I looked Jet and Jackson, I'm like, hey, do you know I love you? Go have fun. Let's go have some fun. But some reason and somehow we, we take this performance mentality and we put that upon God and we go, you know what, I got to perform for him. And, and, and I got to perform in a certain way and I got to do certain things. And if I act a certain way and I behave a certain way and I, and I, and I read my Bible so many times and I go to church so many times, then, then God will love me. And I want you to see out of the gates this morning, his posture towards you is love, not condemnation. You're loved. I told you it was simple. And, and I, I just want you to hear that this morning. And, and I remember being in college and my college pastor, and I don't mean to individualize it. I just talked about like the church family being a body. We are a body. But, but for God so loved Justin, and he, he's like, hey, write your name. We're not changing scripture here, all right? but you can write your name above it. For God so loved you. It's easy to be like, you know, I, I know he loves Billy. I know he loves Shelly. I know he loves Susan. I know he loves, but he couldn't love me. And if you remember back a few weeks ago, because we've just been walking through the book of John, he knows the hearts of all men. He knows you. And, and that's what's so comforting is because we don't have to pretend or perform and we don't have to get our act together. And he doesn't love a future version of you. He doesn't love, you know, a more polished version of you. He loves you for who you are. As you walked in this room today, he loves you. His posture towards you is love. For God so loved. He loves you. And if you hear nothing, nothing that I say this morning, he loves you. His posture towards you is one of love. We read in the context, and I think it's important to understand the context of this passage because a lot of times John 3.16 is kind of plucked out of this context of the Nicodemus narrative. And, and we, we don't really, I, I feel like it, it gives us a, a, a more depth, more uh, understanding of What's happening when we go back and, and remember what has previously happened in the life of Nicodemus? Because if you, in my Bible, and here's what I would tell you, in the original Hebrew, okay, the Bible was originally written in Hebrew and Greek, not English, okay? So it wasn't written to Americans, and, uh, and, and we're originally written in Hebrew and Greek, and punctuation was not an aspect of the original Hebrew, so when in my Bible, in verse 16, there's these two quotation marks right there, right before the word for. And so someone is saying this. The question that interpreters have wrestled with is, is, is Jesus saying this? Is this a continuation of the conversation with Nicodemus? Or is this John, the, the author of the Gospel of John? Or is this John describing his commentary of, hey, here's what happened in the life of Nicodemus, and, and basically to summarize the gospel message, here you go. Now, I will tell you that I believe it's Jesus, the continuation of his message with Nicodemus, okay? That's the way the ESV translators, they, they transcribed it as they put these quotations in. This is the ongoing work of Jesus, and, and this is his message, and, and that's what we have to wrestle with. So is this the ongoing conversation with Nicodemus, or is John saying, hey, this is my commentary on the gospel? I believe it's Nicodemus, and here's why. Nicodemus is the, is the religious upright leader. He is, he's polished, guys. In, in talking about performance, like he prays hours a day, he tithes, he, he's a faithful churchgoer. And Jesus tells him, hey, none of that counts. You have to be born again. And I want you to see that Nicodemus' approach to Jesus was one he came at night. And, and many commentators have, have discussed this, that even when you look at the fact that Nicodemus came at night, then we, he's referencing at the very end in 21, 22, when we start, he's referencing darkness and light. We see these contrast of this picture of going, like, here's Nicodemus coming under the cover of night. He doesn't want to come. Like, he's, he's a part of the popular crowd. If I'm approaching Jesus, if I'm showing any curiosity about Jesus, 
that may be bad for my reputation, right? So I'm going to go at night. It's safe to go at night. It's safe to go in the cover of darkness and get curious about this guy, Jesus. Now, Nicodemus is going to appear a couple different times in John. I think three total, if I'm correct. He appears, I think, in John 17, and then I think John 19. Maybe wrong in that. But John 7, he, he's showing some curiosity, and I think we see this transition of faith in Nicodemus. In John chapter 19, I believe it is, it's the crucifixion of Jesus, and, and, and Nicodemus is one who prepares Jesus' body for burial. He's holding the broken, bloodied body of Jesus. Imagine that. So I want you to see, like, that's coming full circle, like, where this is going in the life of Nicodemus. But he starts in a posture of night. His journey of faith was not one of like, hey, I'm going all in. I'm showing up at church and like, I'm curious. I'm going to sign up for an alpha group and I'm going to talk with the pastor and like figure out this stuff about Jesus. He goes in the cover of night and he begins asking questions. He's secretive. It's not open, exposed. It's not in the light. He comes in a very secretive way. And, and what he describes to Nicodemus he, he talks about two different groups of people, and it's described all in this passage. So he talks about those who have been born again and those who haven't been born again, those who believe and those who don't believe, those who have eternal life and those who will perish, those who have stepped into the light and those who love darkness, those who have come to the light and those who hate the light, those who rely upon the works of God and those who rely upon themselves. And here's where I see that. In verse 21, this is important. It says, But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Now, here's the thing about Nicodemus. Nicodemus doesn't believe his works have been carried out by God. It's easy for Nicodemus not to see his need for the Son. It's easy for Nicodemus to not see his need for a Savior. He is self-righteous. He's attempting to save himself by his own good efforts and good works. And it's not that good works are bad. They're just meant to be the fruit of salvation, the evidence of salvation. They're not made to be the attempt for salvation. You don't have to perform to be loved. You're loved, therefore you perform, right? If you've been with us any uh, extensive amount of time, you've heard us ask four questions. Who is God? What has God done? Who am I? How do I live? Most of us flip that upside down. How I live is based on who I am, and ultimately who I am is determined by what I do, and, and that's depending, that characterizes the nature and character of God. If God's going to love me or not is based on how I perform, and I want you to know that Ephesians, you read the book of Ephesians, it flips that upside down. Who God is and what God has done determines who you are. You can't change that. He's called you. This is who you are. So guess what? My kids, they can go and they can perform really terribly at that, at that baseball game. And guess what? They're still loved when they get in the car. You're loved. You're loved. You're loved. And Nicodemus is thinking, I got to perform to be loved. I got to do these things. I got to do all of these good works. I got to, I'm self-righteous. It's all in my good attempts and my good works and all of my ways. I'm going to do this. This is by my might. He doesn't see his need for a savior. He doesn't have the word, I can't. He's like, I can, I can do it. I can, I can do this in my own strength. And the person who does that is not able to come to the light and see that his works have been carried out by God. And that's why I think that's a continuation of this passage. We see this come full circle. I feel like this passage wraps up the story of Nicodemus. You're going to see it even more as we jump into this. Here's what I want you to hear out of the gates. God moves towards us in Jesus. God moves toward us in Jesus. So many of us, maybe you showed up here this morning and you think, I, I, I get it. I totally get it. Because when I look back of my conversion, when, when God came in and transformed and changed my life, I felt like it was my decision. Okay? I, I felt like I was, I was choosing. I, my buddies on my golf team, that's, that's who it was. Like when I was in senior in high school, my buddies on my golf team we're going to a church on Wednesday nights, and I said, hey, where are you guys going? 
They're like, oh, we go to this church. I want to go. I want to go with you. I'm like, this is me choosing. And I go, and I'm, getting, I'm, I'm exposed to the good news of the gospel. And, and I'm, I'm thinking, but this was actually, God was already working in my heart. God was moving towards me in Jesus. God was drawing me near. We didn't cause our birth, our physical birth. We had no play or part in our physical birth. Did you? Like, no, you didn't tell, hey, I want to be born. No, like it happened. You were born. And Jesus says to Nicodemus, that's the very same thing that's going to happen. It comes like the wind. You can't grasp the wind. The wind comes from where it wants to. It does what it wants to. That's the same thing when it comes to your new birth. He said the Holy Spirit's going to move into your life. You didn't cause it. You respond to it. We go over to uh, Ephesians chapter 2. You got your Bible? You can turn over with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 1, it says, you were dead in your trespasses and sin. Hey, let me ask you a question. What do dead people do? Nothing, great. Dead people do nothing. That was you. That was where we were. Dead people do nothing. In which we once walked following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, that spirit is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived... Verse 4, but God, but God, but God. God is the original act. He moves towards you. God initiates. God initiates. John chapter 6, verse 44. No one can come to me. No one. And I, I, oh, maybe someone. No one. No one. No one can come to the Father unless the Father who sent him Draws him. The Holy Spirit moving. First John 4, 19. Why do we love? We love because he first loved us. He initiates, we respond. For God, for God so loved the world. Did you know? Like before you did anything. We read back. You can go back, Genesis chapter 1. Read, he, he called them righteous. Read through all the first accounts. They did nothing. They literally just existed and God called them. God named them. God said, this is who you are. So much of our identity, we believe, is earned and it's given. God has given. He loves you. He loves you. God initiates. God initiates. He acts. We respond. And God's first step towards you is not one of condemnation, but one of love. He did not come into the world. He did not send his son in the world to condemn the world. He didn't send his son into the world to make you lovely. He loved you. He loved you. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that he sent his son into the world so that he could love you. He loved you, so he sent his son. And that's life-changing. Like when I begin to grasp that this morning, I'm, I'm like, That's not always how I think his posture is towards me. I'm like, man, he's out to get me. He's out to strike me down. He's out to create hardship in my, like, what is the, it's not one of love. And even when he does create hardship in my life, do I see it through the hand of love? His posture is one of love. For God so loved, you ever thought about that word so I think it's easy to just skip over it. I read it this week and I was like, he's so loved. Is he talking about like the quantity of his love? Like he loves you so much? I mean, you, you, you've gotten in that conversation, like how much do you love me? I, I love you so much. Well, how much is that? Like this, you know? And like you try to like give some sort of quantity to it, right? And it's like, I mean, four feet? Like, you love me four feet? Uh, how, how much do you love me? As much as the sand, you know, particles of sand in the sea. Now, we can never count it, right? As many as stars in the sky. He loves you so, so much. It's unimaginable, right? But I think is he doesn't just give us a picture, something that can't be measured, It says he loves you so much that he would do this. So the word so there, how much he loves you, is 
in direct correlation with what he was willing to give to show that love. And he gave his son. He gave his son. He gave Jesus to us. He so loved you. But here's what I want you to see. He loved the world. And, and I, I think many of us, when we read the world, and, and I didn't come up with this on my own, but when I read this this week, it transformed the way I read this passage. And Pastor Sam Storms, who's in Oklahoma City, like, he helped me come up with this, okay? So this isn't Justin Bindle's brain. We give all the credit to Sam and glory to God, all right? So here it is. It's the definition of world. What is the world? Because I think a lot of times we think of world, it's about quantity. Like we think about all the people that he's loved in the history of time. You know, like we're, we're, I think about for the first time we're sending people into outer space, like ordinary everyday people, right? Like one of the guys from Dude Perfect went to, you know, got to see earth from a distance. Pretty awesome, right? So like imagine like for you to zoom out and he's like, for God so loved the world, and you look at how vast, it, how big it is, how massive it is, and you see, like, he loves that, but it's not about how much, as, as much as it is what kind of love that he's showing. And here, here's what I would, I feel like this has helped open the realms of John 3.16 for me. The contrast here is moral, not mathematical, is what Sam Storm says, Okay. It's the difference in type between God and the world. Here's the thing. God is completely holy. There is no one like our God. He's completely set apart, distinct in all of creation. And then there's the world. And it's like for God to love something so completely other is what is crazy about this passage. He says, I'm not so sure that what John is saying here, I don't think we learn anything about God's love by counting heads. Like, he loved a billion people. God's love is not magnified when we ask how many. It's magnified when we ask what kind of love. In other words, the issue isn't quantity but quality. The nature of the people whom God loves is what's crucial, not their number. The type of people. Now, B.B. Warfield, he's an old school theologian. Here's what he said. It is not here a term of extension so much as a term of intensity. Its primary connotation is ethical, and the point of its employment is not to suggest that the world is so big that it takes a great deal of love, so much love to cover all that, that group of people. He's saying the world is so bad that it takes a great kind of love to love it all. And much more love to love it as it is. So it's this contrast between God and mankind and sinful human beings. The, the lover is righteous and the lover is not. And the loved is not. God loved the moral antithesis of himself. Now here's the thing. I know we would love, like many of us, we know the difficulty of loving someone that's not like us. We wrestle with that. We look at the challenges in our world, and I'm like, just get in the context of community, and you're like, man, they're hard to love. It's just like, because they're a little bit different. They have greater passions. Like, they love volleyball, and you love basketball, and you're like, I don't know. I don't think we could ever hang out, right? And, and here's someone who is like completely holy, set apart, righteous, and we are completely, what he's showing is the contrasting difference of this, of going, we are completely unworthy, undeserving. We are in the depths of our sin. We are enemies of God, and He loves us. That's crazy. He loves us. And here's who He's telling this to. Nicodemus, the good guy. And what He's doing is He's showing this contrast. Now, here's the thing. I don't think any of us could really stand up. Like if we're getting on a balance scale with Nicodemus, we're like, he wins, right? Like if we just want to match good works to good works and, hey, Nicodemus, you go, I'll go. And uh, well, man, you got pretty extensive account of good works there. You know what? I, I haven't 
tithe all of my income. And you know what? I didn't pray for two hours today. And, you know, I don't have all the religious laws memorized. And, and, and he's telling that guy he doesn't make it. Because what we're talking about is we're talking about the holiness of God and the sinfulness of mankind. And those are vastly different. They are so, the chasm between those two is so great. But here's the thing. He doesn't do all this to show us how bad we are. That's what the next verse says. His point in this passage is not to show you how bad you are, but how great he is. His whole point of this is not to be like, let me show you. Like, let me just pull out your laundry list of sins that you committed this morning before you even got here. He goes, hey, I just want to show you that that's the type of love I have for you. While you were doing the very thing I hated, while you were like totally avoiding the light, when you were running away from me, when you were enemies of me, when you were doing everything possible to avoid me, I kept running after you. I kept pursuing you. And I love you so much that I would send my son Jesus to die for you. This is what he's showing you. It's not, a men, it's not an attempt to show you how bad you are, but how great he is. It's not to condemn, but to show us your need for a savior. Nicodemus didn't, he didn't think he needed a savior. Nicodemus thought he was good, right? And what he was trying to show Nicodemus was, let me show you how great God is. And that's the guy you're trying to get to. You see that there's a chasm there's no way we can make that jump. There's no way. We are, we are vastly different. And when we look at God's holiness and our sinfulness, there is a major separation. I met a man yesterday. I was in a conversation with him, and he began to, to share. And it's always a, a unique conversation because it usually comes up, hey, I, I pastor a church, and this is what I do. And, um, and almost always people try to justify themselves in that moment. And they begin to say, yeah, you know, I believe what it takes. And they kind of ramble off some different works of loving your neighbor and being a good person and trying to do good in the world. And, and they're, they're self-righteous in many ways. They're trying to rattle off a lot of the good things and trying to balance the scales. In many ways, they're like Nicodemus. And they haven't been exposed to the greatness of our God and that type of love. That type of love, like they're like, I can't love like that. But that's the way God loves me. That's totally other. And I just had a conversation with him and we began talking and he began telling me his challenges with the church. He said, you know, there's a lot of brokenness in the church. There's a lot, of, and, and there is. When we look back and we, we see church history, it's a mess. It's a mess. We look, like, not to put things on your headlines, but I'm like, man, we look at what's going on in the Southern Baptist Convention. We look on, it doesn't matter. Any organized group of people. And so as he's sharing, he's like using that as an excuse of why he doesn't attend. It's like, man, it's broken. I'm like, hey, have you ever thought that no matter what group of people it is? Because I said, it's not just the church. I'm the first to say Come to Church of the Valley, you're going to see brokenness here. But I'm like, really, anywhere you go, any group of people, there's going to be brokenness? Because we're people, everybody, we're all people in need of a Savior. That brokenness exists. It exists in your workplace. It exists in your family. It exists in your home. It exists in your neighborhood. It exists in, in your friendships and your relationships. That brokenness is present. And so many of us have postured ourselves from it and like, and we stand off from a distance judging when in reality, I, I go, we got to point to ourselves. Like I didn't tell this guy this, all right? I didn't want to be condemning to him, but I'm going, hey man, the problem's not in the church. The problem's in you. But here's what I would say. The problem's not with you. It's in me. And we got to own that for ourselves. What he's trying to show us is that you and I, we can't, we can't love like this. We have no, we would not give or sacrifice or 
offer this type of love to our enemy. We can't. We won't. You don't. But God did. And that love is meant to change us. It's meant to change us. See, this guy I met yesterday, as long as he looks out there and says, the brokenness is out there, the brokenness is out there, the brokenness is out there, he never sees his need for a Savior. It's easy to point and say the problem, but he never sees it for himself. He never sees that there is a great chasm for him. He doesn't see himself as this this sinful human being. He doesn't see God in his holiness. He doesn't see that great distance. And because of it, he's like, I don't attend church. I don't see my need for that. And that's understandable. But this love is meant to change us. There's some of us that think we deserve his love, but it's when we rightfully see ourselves that we know, no. Anyways, I could camp on this all day, right? There's a song. I'm going to make some people uncomfortable here, all right? Ready? There's a song, uh, and I, I quoted a Corey Asbury song a few weeks ago, and, uh, and he has a song called Reckless Love. And so for some reason, this song, uh, for the Reformed intellectual Christian community, we, we are like, oh man, I'm going to push my, myself back from this one a little bit because like talking about God being reckless is, is a little bit uncomfortable. And here's what I would say, and if you actually dug in and listened to what Corey Asbury had to say, it's not so much that, that God, God's love towards you is not reckless, okay? It's very calculated, like he loves you. And, and, but from our perspective, it seems reckless. Like we are enemies. We are abusive of his name. We are people who love the darkness, whose works are evil. And he's like, I'm going after them. And I'll leave the 99 and go after them. And we're like, that seems crazy. Now, here's the thing. Us reformed intellectual, we, we don't tend to like open our hearts to those like but we got to feel that, all right? So if, if like at the top of your lungs, you're like, the reckless love, like in your, you, you might got to do that sometime because it is crazy what he did. It's crazy that he would send his son. It's crazy that God himself would take on human flesh and come into a world that was abusive to him, who was enemies, who, who were walking in wrath, sons of disobedience, And he's like, I'm going to go and die for those people because I love them. It's crazy. Now, God's love isn't reckless. God is all-knowing. He's all-wise. But he says, I don't care. I'm coming after your heart. I'm going to show you what love looks like. doesn't matter what it takes. It doesn't matter what it costs. He's coming after you. Here's the question. Set aside all of your theological knowledge for just a second. Don't be Nicodemus right now. Have you encountered the love of God? Do you know what it means to be loved by God? Some of us think, Hey, I'm a pretty lovable guy. I'm nice. I'm kind. People should love me. And it's probably how Nicodemus sees himself. I'm a pretty likable guy. People respect me. I'm well-educated. I'm moral. I'm helpful. I'm kind. I'm religious. I'm a pretty likable guy. And the love of God should come easy. And until we come to the reality, here's who God is. And until we come into the reality of here's who, here's who I am, we don't see the depth of our sinfulness. And we don't see the measure of his holiness. We don't become thankful for the cross. The cross has minimized in our understanding. Why would Jesus need to go to the cross? 
Why does Jesus need to die? If we don't see the depth of our sinfulness, if we see the depth of our sinfulness and His holiness for God, so love the world, those things are completely other. And if, if, if He loves that, if we see that, if we see ourselves like, no, I'm actually like right here, and the chasm is small, the cross doesn't have to make up much. But when we see ourselves like God's holiness is out in like Camus, right? And my sinfulness is on the other side of the world. It's like we can never. And the, and the cross of Jesus satisfies that. And it, it causes us to worship. It causes us to praise. I remember the day that my life was changed like it was yesterday. The first time, the first time I come to understand my sin in comparison to the holiness of God. I grew up in church. I went to a Catholic church growing up. Uh, for about the first 10, 12 years of my life. I, I understand, I understood the, the nature and character of God. I knew that He was creator. I would lob up prayers to Him occasionally. Hey God, take care of this, do this. And it wasn't until I was 18 years old that I became aware of the depth of my sinfulness. And it wasn't until I was 18 years old that I began to understand the depth of his love for me in the midst of my sinfulness. He did not send Jesus into the world to condemn the world, but to save it. The way in which he saves you is he, 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 makes the, he exposes those things in your life to show you your need for him. He exposes your sinfulness. And, and many of us, we're like, that's really uncomfortable. I, and I totally get that. And, and we come to church and we love to perform and we love to show up and we act like everything's okay. And, but the nature of his people and God's people is that we would be people who have been exposed by the light that we're no longer in hiding, that we're coming and we're like, eh, it's all laid to bear, like... I'm sinful. I hope that doesn't fool any of you. I hope none of you look, and, and if you know me, I know it doesn't because you tell me, right? Pastor Justin, right here, this guy, the guy up here talking, is a sinful man. Sinful man. The way I should love and serve my family and care for my family, the way that I should sacrifice and give and love people. The way in which I love and honor God and I seek first His kingdom, I fall short. I fall short. And this should be a place where we get to come when we see God and His holiness and us and our sinful. He shines the light into our life to expose us. Not to condemn us. Not to be like, hey, look. Look at the sins. of look at, look at what you've done. Look at what, I want to make that known. He doesn't do it. He does that to save us. Because he doesn't want you to continue in a living hell. He, he doesn't want you to perish. He wants to give you eternal life. And eternal life is not something that is life just going on forever. It's about the quality of life that can be experienced here now today. He wants you to have eternal life now, in the present, in the moment, right now. But many of us, out of fear of being exposed, we continue to reject the light. We run towards the darkness. We reject Jesus. And we continue to live. We're condemned already. We're condemned already. What does that mean? It means you're condemned already to your living hell. What you've made of your life. See, the Bible isn't just full of, of do's and don'ts. It's not just a, a book of suggestions of like, hey, the, here's some things that you should do and don't do. But it's actually things that have been given for your life to flourish. For you to have and experience eternal life here today. And when we reject that, when we turn from that, 
what we experience is a living hell. And he's come to save you from that. He's come to set you free from that. He gives. He gives. He's a giving God. But not only that, because I think it's like, ah, God loves me, but does Jesus love me? Did Jesus go to the cross willingly or was he coerced by his father to do so? It's God the Father looking at God the Son and say, hey, would you go down there and make those people lovable? Would you cover them in righteousness so I could love them? No, he's like, hey, I love them. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sending you to go and love them. I'm, I'm sending you to demonstrate my love. I want them to know the depth of my love for them. John 10.10, I come that they may have life. Jesus said this. I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus lays down his life for the sheep. It wasn't taken from him. John 10, 17 through 18, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. Here's what it means. If Jesus was willing to do that, then Jesus loves you too. Double bonus. It's crazy, guys. Jesus was willing to do that. Jesus was willing to go to the cross to demonstrate his love for you. The cross is God's work. It's God's work. One commentator said, Jesus Christ came to earth not in order to change God's mind, but to express God's mind. Which means heaven doesn't harbor an adversary. Heaven doesn't harbor an adversary. Heaven is not against you. It loves you. The posture of God towards you is love. He doesn't die to make you lovable. How do we know that? Show me that. 5.8, Romans 5.8. God demonstrates his love for you when you were perfect. No, while you were yet sinners, he died for you. He demonstrated his love while you were doing the very thing he hated, being enemies of God, He died for you. He didn't come to change God's mind to make him love you, but to demonstrate his mind towards you. And he comes to give you eternal life. Eternal life. Are you living? We asked this question last week. Are you living? Are you living? Do you feel condemned? If you feel condemned today... That's not God. God has come. His posture towards you is love. Now, I get that many of us who are here today, um, even the emphasis that I've given towards love can be enough to make the religious feel uncomfortable. Because I've, I've just lavished grace upon grace upon grace. What about, what about good works? What about, I'm like, that'll come. I, I think of so many people who get together with me and they're like, hey, what do you think about this issue? And they want to find some way of separating themselves. Whatever it is, just throw out a hot topic. Hey, what do you think about this? And I'm like, hey, do you know what I think about like God's posture to that? God loves you. God loves you. It's not my job to change you. It's, my, it's not my job to transform you. My job is to preach the good news of Jesus. He said, With the coming of Jesus, it'd be good news of great joy for all people. How many of you went to church and you heard bad news? You're like, man, that's bad news. It's good news, which means I'm just like lavishing grace upon you. And it's like, well, people are going to take advantage of it. Guess what? Jesus died for people who are going to take advantage of it. That's why it's reckless, right? Wes is going to come sing that song right after. No, he's not. We'll talk him into it. When the light of the world begins to shine on a person's life, it must either break him and lead him to repentance and faith or drive him further into the darkness. That's how this passage ends. It either breaks you, and that's the response that you have today. Like when you're exposed to this type of love, either it breaks you and like, 
I want to experience that. Or you reject it and it just pushes you further into darkness. Don't reject it. Charles Spurgeon wasn't a perfect man, but here's the thing. He's a loved man. Old Baptist preacher, 1800s. There's over 200 references in his sermons to come into faith in Jesus. It's a, it's a remarkable story, and he couldn't quit telling the story. He says, I was years and years upon the brink of hell. I mean, in my own feeling. I was unhappy. I was desponding. I was despairing. I dreamed of hell. My life was full of sorrow and wretchedness, believing that I was lost. And he woke up on January uh, in Sunday. He woke up on a Sunday in January in 1850 uh, with just a deep need for deliverance. And so he took off walking to church. He said, because of a snowstorm, the 15-year-old's path to church was diverted down a side street. For shelter, he ducked into a primitive Methodist chapel on Artillery Street. An unknown substitute lay preacher stepped into the pulpit. There were no more than a dozen people present. Even the minister had failed to arrive because of the weather. It was the wrong church, wrong congregation, wrong weather, and the wrong preacher. And into the pulpit climbed a thin-looking man, a shoemaker or tailor, Spurgeon was, was never to know anything about this man, and he read this text, Isaiah 45, 22. Look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there's no one else. And he said the preacher managed to spin that out for 10 minutes. He didn't have anything else to say. So he just kept saying that over and over and over again. And he looked at his congregation just saying, look unto me. What does it mean to look? It means to look. And he just kept preaching that over and over and over again. And he looked at young Spurgeon and he said, young man, no one would want this in a, if you came this morning. But he looked at the young man. He said, young man, you look very miserable. That's quite a call out, right? And well, said Spurgeon, I do look miserable, but I've not been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit about my personal appearance before. However, it was a good blow. It struck right home. And the preacher said, you'll always be miserable, miserable in life, miserable in death, if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now this moment, you will be saved. And he shouted at the top of his voice, as I think only a primitive Methodist can, young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but to look and to live. And he says, as he wrestled with that, he was converted. Conversion. Even the word kind of makes us uncomfortable because it means what I am, it, it's, it's got to change. But God loves you as you are, just as I am, as the old hymn said. He loves you just the way you are. But he's going to transform you. The Heidelberg Catechism I'll throw this in for the people who are the Reformed, all right? Here we go. What is, what is true repentance or the conversion of man? It's the dying of the old nature and coming to life of the new. That's what he wants to bring about in your life. And he does that by exposing. He exposes your sinfulness. He exposes your need. He exposes his holiness. He exposes his great love. And what this whole passage is about it's meant to show us who God is. It's meant to show us who we are. And he's supposed to, it, it's supposed to lead us to a place where we see his great love in spite of it. If we're not sinners, we don't need the gospel. If we do not feel that we are sinners, we do not feel our need of the gospel. And will not embrace it. If we do not feel ourselves guilty, we will not look to Christ for pardon. If we do not feel ourselves to be polluted, we'll not look for a desire cleaning. We must there be convinced of our sin in order to be saved. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. The story of Nicodemus, he said, Jesus will be high and lifted up in the same way that the serpent on the bronze pole was held up. You got to look to Jesus. You're here today and you're saying, maybe, how do, how do I experience that love? Look to Jesus and receive it. He freely gives it. He freely offers it. As we enter into our time of response and time of communion this morning,
There are two things that Jesus commanded us to participate in as a church, which the Christian church has regularly practiced for over 2,000 years, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism is the outward symbol of an inward heart change, going public with your faith and declaring to a community, we're a part of this family. We celebrate this a few times a year. We celebrated this last Sunday, that we are as a church, even in that, that baptism, we're reminded of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. As a new follower of Jesus goes under the water and is raised again to walk in newness of life, it reminds us of the death, burial, and resurrection. Then after being baptized into the family of God, Christians regularly participate as we gather together. They participate in the Lord's Supper or communion as an ongoing sign and continued commitment to following Jesus. It's like a regular renewal of that baptism commitment. And we do this each and every week as we gather as a church. The Lord's Supper is for members of our church and for guests who are born-again believers and followers of Jesus Christ. And as we partake in the Lord's Supper this morning, we are reminded and celebrate three realities. Christ died. Christ died. We remember together what God has done for us in Christ, and we proclaim his death until he comes. We're reminded also, though, that Christ is risen. We remember together what God is doing now for us in the Holy Spirit. Christ is coming again. We remember and proclaim together what God has promised to do. He is returning for his bride, the church. So the Lord's Supper consists of two elements, the bread and the cup. And as we take it together, we reflect on these words from 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 25. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, may all who participate together in this sacred ordinance today be blessed by an overwhelming sense of your grace to save us. May we feel your presence with us. May we know your love. And may our hope be revived that you're coming soon for your people. Amen.